Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's student ministry sermon. Hello, hello, everyone. Feels a little awkward being up here and not being the one leaving the stage right now. But we have a really weird story today. I think that this might be one of the weirdest moments in David's life. So we've been talking about David this semester, and we've been talking about how he is um, a man after God's own heart, and our theme of becoming human is when we are most like God. And so this story that we're talking about today, um, if you hear nothing else from me today, if you literally check out after I finish this sentence, I want you to know from David's example that we are most human and therefore most like God when we are worshiping God. So if you hear nothing else, hear this. So first things first, before we get into our story, in order to understand our story better, we need to understand about the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's kind of a weird object in Israel's history. We're going to throw a picture of it um, here in a bit. And so the Ark of the Covenant, what was it? The Ark of the Covenant was the prized possession of Israel. Um, God gave specific instructions to the Israelites on Mount Sinai on how to build it, on how to transport it, on how to interact with it. Um, it was made from acacia wood, and it was covered in gold. Um, on the side, you can see little rings that, they, that the priests would put uh, poles through, so that in the wilderness, when they were wandering around for the 40 years in the desert, um, and they would camp in different places, in order to move the ark, they would put poles so that the priests could carry the ark without touching it. And this was the appropriate way that Moses laid out in the very beginning of how to interact with the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the ark, there were significant um, things from Israel's history. There was the Ten Commandment tablets. Um, if you also remember the manna that God sent from, the, from heaven when they were in the wilderness, as well as Aaron's staff that budded. And these are not just random objects. These were objects um, of Israel's history that showcased God's power and his provision to guide the Israelites and to lead them through their darkest times. On the top of it, you can see there are two angels and in between the two angels is what they're looking towards, is what the center, the center is called the mercy seat, which is where the very presence of God dwelt within Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle, in the very innermost part of the tabernacle, um, in a place called the Holy of Holies, behind a veil. Um, and so it was, it was the center of everything. The tabernacle, um, it was in the center of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the center of the camp. And it was the very center of everything about the nation of Israel. It was the center of their worship. It was the center of their identity. You can think of this thing as kind of a monument of the nation. It, it spoke to their identity as a nation. Similarly, I can think of things of America and maybe the thing that comes to mind of a monument of us is the Statue of Liberty. And just how the Statue of Liberty talks about a thing that is deep within our core as Americans of freedom. This spoke deeply to the core of the nation of Israel. It showed that they were people of God, that they were chosen by God, that God dwelled among them. One commentator writes that this ark was a visible representation of an invisible God dwelling among these people. 
And thirdly, it bridged a gap between the unholy and the holy. So Israelites, just like us, were sinners. They were unholy people. And yet God had chosen them, and he's a holy God. This was the bridge between the two. God, the people had sinned, and God was holy. And so God could not dwell with an unholy people. And so God put in place the sacrificial system. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the tabernacle past the veil into the Holy of Holies and would sacrifice on this very altar for the, to cover the sins of the entire nation. So this was the very center of the Israelites. Um, this was the only way that God could dwell with them. It was the only way, it was the only location where the Spirit of God could be amongst these unholy people. To touch this was to interact with something so holy that it could crush you. So with that understanding of what this box that looks kind of weird, we're going to jump into our story. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, um, turn to, to 2 Samuel chapter 6, where this event in history is recorded. And as you're doing that, I'm going to give some, a little bit of background. We've been talking about David this whole semester, and up until this point, he is now king. So he's King David now. He's ruling over the nation of Israel. Um, but even but long before David, long before Saul even, the Israelites began to fall away from God. And instead of revering this thing that was the center of their worship, they began to treat it like a good luck charm. And at one point, they were so afraid that they were going to be defeated that they decided it would be the best thing for them to carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. And so God responded to this misuse of the Ark by allowing the Philistines to take captive of the Ark. But as soon as the Philistines um, captured the ark, they began to break out with tumors all through their nation. And when they recognized that it was because they had stolen the ark, they were like, I don't want any part of this. Hand it back. We don't need this. Get it out. And so they put it on a cart, and they sent it back into Israelite territory. And it remained in Israel in a household within the territory of Israel for decades, all through Samuel, all through Paul, all the way up to where we are now with King David. And so King David, is he's just conquered a lot of things. He's become this military power. He is now king. And so therefore he decides, all right, we, it's time for the ark to become part of the center again. It's time to bring it back into its prominence. And so in chapter 6, David gathers his people, and he, brings, he decides to bring the ark back into Jerusalem to reestablish it as, as the center of worship. And so he gets all of the nation of Israel, and basically what they're doing is they're going to start a giant parade, and they're going to throw this huge party to celebrate the fact that the ark is finally being taken back into um, its rightful place. But they decide to carry it by putting it on a cart, and it's being pulled by two oxen. And there's two guys that are watching it to make sure that it's good. And so as they are going, they're dancing, and they're celebrating, and they're singing, and they're going crazy about this giant parade. And as they're entering, as they're getting close to the city, the oxen stumble. And one of the guys that's standing there, his name is Uzzah, reaches out, and he thinks that it'll be better for him to grab hold of it and to steady it rather than for it to fall. And as soon as he touches it, he is instantly killed. And this throws David for a loop. Now, this is not the first time that we know of that God deals harshly with people who mistreat the ark. Um, we see the Philistines as they stole it and they got tumors. And also, when the Philistines sent it back into Israelite territory, there were 70 Israelites who looked inside of the ark and who were struck down and killed. 
And so David is just thrown for loop. He is angry. He's afraid at what happened to Uzzah. And so he leaves the ark in a household and he goes back to Jerusalem and waits for three months. And during those three months, though, he finds out that the household that is housing the ark is, has been blessed greatly by God. And so he finally realizes, okay, we need to bring this to Jerusalem. We need to try again. Except for this time, he finally does it right. And we read in First Chronicles 15, which is a parallel passage to Second Samuel. Um, it says, The Levites carried the ark of the God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. So they're doing it right this time. They're following the laws that God set in place to protect this nation from this pure holiness. So David and all of Israel are starting this parade all over again. They're celebrating. They're dancing. They're singing. They're going crazy to, to celebrate the fact that the ark is returning. And as they enter the city, David's wife, whose name is Michael, is, who's also the daughter of the previous king, Saul, sees David going crazy and dancing. And the Bible says that she despised him in her heart. And the reason for this, so David was dancing with the priests, and he was wearing, the, what the Bible says, is a linen and ephod. So an ephod was the priestly garment. This would have already leveled him as from the king. It's going to bring him down to the level of a common priest. But it also, lots of commentators believe that this would be um, the equivalent of dancing around in front of the entire nation, basically in your underwear. So not only is he a king and leveled to the level of a priest, he's literally dancing in front of everyone in the whole entire nation in, in his underwear. So of course his wife is going to be a little upset with him. So David comes home and Michael says in verse 20, if you're following along, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the, of the girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David responds to her in verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. So this is a weird story, guys. I, I feel like I got stuck with the weird one. Thanks, Adam. Way to go. So what in the world is this story of a man touching a box and dying and a guy dancing around in his underwear and his wife hating on him? What does this have to do with us today? I think this story can um, give us two things to watch for. First of all, this story is a warning to us. It's a warning to take worship seriously. Don't lose sight of the holiness and the power and the majesty of the God that we worship. Both in the Old Testament and during Jesus' time, God often is the harshest with the people who should have known better. The Philistines were afflicted with tumors, but this was no comparison to the fate of many Israelites because they were not the ones who were called by God, taught by God. They were not the ones who were led all through the wilderness by God. They were not in a covenantal relationship with God. And yet... Israel was all of those things. God dealt even more severely with Uzzah because he was a Levite. And a Levite was someone whose sole purpose in life was to minister before God. He was to guide the entire worship of the, na of the nation. It was his job to know these things. But it's not just about those who are in leadership roles. 
Um, this, this also hits home hard for me, too, because I understand, like, that's my job is to lead people in worship, and I need to take this seriously. But it's not just for those of us who are paid to do these things. It's not for people who are just in leadership roles. Because we also see that the 70 people who looked inside the ark and were struck down were Israelites. They had heard the laws passed down from Moses. They knew how to treat the ark with reverence. They knew what was expected of them, and yet, and yet they chose not to. And they paid, paid dearly for their mistakes. Um, this is the, true of us. We know better. We are those people who, have, who know how to treat God. They knew better. You know better. Many of you guys have grown up in the church, and you've heard these stories over and over and over again about the power and the majesty of God. And even for those of you who haven't and you're new to faith, you still have in your hands the very words of God that tell the story of redemption from all the way back, all the way through to Jesus and the gospel. So we have no excuse. We understand. We can know how powerful and holy and mighty God is. So therefore, we have to take it seriously. This is not something to blow off or to make light of. And yes, things are different now. We don't have to go through the same rules that they did in the Old Testament. Um, The veil of the ark that we talked about earlier with separating it from the outer courts, it was torn when Christ was the final sacrifice, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the world as a whole. Because of Christ, we live every day in the presence of a holy God. This is almost even more um, terrifying sometimes to think of than it was for them. For them, it was one high priest entering into the holiest of holy place to interact with God. Now we live in the very presence of God through, because of Christ, we are able to be in the presence of God at all times. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is personal, And it's friendly, and I love that. And our interactions with God can and should be informal at times. But never lose sight of who it is that we get to speak to. He is a holy God, and we are totally incapable of being holy on our own. We do not deserve to be in his presence, and yet he chooses to be in relationship with us. He is all-powerful, yet we are weak. So do not let your familiarity with his grace or his gentleness or his kindness allow you to shrug your shoulders at his awe and his majesty. Allow it to deepen your respect and move you to stand in wonder at who he is and what he's done. So first, it's a warning to us to take things seriously, to take worship seriously. And second, I think it's a challenge to us to worship God with boldness and humility. When we truly see God for his power and his majesty, our natural response should be worship. But then what is worship? I think it's easier for me to explain what it's not than what it is because worship can be so many different things. And so I'm going to offer you four things um, of what it's not. Worship, first of all, is not about you. The only sense in which worship is even remotely about you is the fact that we are all worshipers. Um, Tim Keller says that if everyone worships something, the only choice that we have is what we worship. So it's not about you, but the fact is you actually worship. So you have to focus on what it is that you worship and how you worship. Secondly, worship is not just singing. I know that that's probably the first thing in your mind of, oh, we're going to go into a time of worship. We're going to sing. It's not, worship is a, or singing is a very important part of worship, but it's not all of worship. 
Worship is you expressing your thankfulness, your joy, your wonder, your amazement at God in any way that you can possibly think of that brings glory and honor to God. So one of my favorite ways of worship um, that doesn't, you wouldn't actually like categorize this as worship normally is when I'm driving home from work or from the gym or anywhere in there, I'm going coffee probably. Um, and it's a beautiful day outside. And so I roll down the windows and I play whatever song that I'm loving at that moment. And I just sit and I, and I look around me. So easy it is to drive and just zone out. And I love to drive and to look at the houses that I pass and to look in the eyes of the people that I see coming across the road at me, to look at the driveways and to think of all the people in Joplin oh, and even in the world. I feel like there's not as many in Joplin, obviously. Um, and to, to sit in wonderment at the fact that God knows all of us. God knows each person in that car, in that house, in that driveway, those kids playing in the lawn. And I look and I watch and that is worship for me. Worship is not just singing. Worship is not just reading your Bible and praying. Those are important parts. But worship can be any time that you sit back and you look and you are amazed at the power of God, at his far-reaching love, and you sit and you worship him for that. Thirdly, worship must not be affected by your fears. Worship cannot be about looking a certain way or how other people see you. Um, it's not about being good at something. One of the things that I love to do is paint. I'm not good at it. Horrible, actually. But I love the, uh, the act of it. And just the, it calms me. It relaxes me. I love the colors. And that is an act of worship for me, that I get to worship God, a God of color, a God of creativity. I'm not good at it. And it's not about being good at it. David probably looked stupid and humiliating when he was dancing and celebrating before the Lord, but he remained unshaken by his wife's opinion. Your actions are not for yourself, they are for, nor are they for the people around you. They are for the Lord. And fourthly, worship must not be affected by your pride. It should not serve to bring attention to yourself or to show how spiritual you are or how in tune with God you are. Um, God desires us to worship with humility. David's goal in the celebration was to reestablish God as the center of Israel. His goal was to realign the hearts of the people with a visible reminder of the presence of God in their midst. It was not to bring attention to himself. Um, the ways that you worship should be void of your desires for praise or attention. And if you're worshiping and you recognize those in your heart, you repent. Worship is you expressing your joy and wonderment at the God that you know and you love. So as we close, we know that worship is not bound by things within services, within the four walls of the church. The things we've talked about regarding worship apply to every act that you could possibly imagine. But here in our context of corporate worship, when we gather in these services and we come together and we sing songs and we hear truth and we read scripture and we pray, um, here are some practical takeaways that I want to challenge you guys with. Let your body express what your heart is proclaiming. And this can look differently for a lot of different people. I recognize that. For me, when I talk to God, when I pray, um, a lot of times I like to actually keep my eyes open and focus on a spot on, at a table or focus on the floor or whatever so that I can lock in, in my mind, this conversation that I'm having with God. Sometimes it's harder for me to close my eyes because then my mind just goes crazy about to-do lists and I have to do this and run this here. And if I lock in on a certain spot, it zones me in on this conversation. But on the contrary, when I'm singing um, and I want to rid myself of distractions and I want to lock in the truth that I'm singing, 
I'll close my eyes so I'm not distracted about the things around me and I will lock in on Jesus and I will physically picture him present with me in that moment. Sometimes it's easy to think of this in the way we interact with people. Um, Words are only part of conversation, right? I read um, somewhere that 55% of communication is through body language. So why, when we're in the presence of our friends or presence of other people, do we engage our bodies to help us communicate? But a lot of the times when we're in the presence of God, which is always, remember, our bodies will communicate disinterest or boredom or completely just checked out. For me, worship sometimes, I talk, I talk with my hands. So of course, I'm going to worship with my hands. I'm going I'm to use my hands when I, when I sing and when I pray. Um, I smile when I'm happy, so therefore I'm going to smile when I'm joyful before the Lord. When I'm driving down the road and I look at all these, these kids playing on the lawn and, you know, brothers and sisters playing together, I'm going to smile when I'm singing songs about the truth and the power and the grace of God that has set me free from my past and from my weaknesses. I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to be joyful. And so I will smile. You can react the same ways with God that you are with your friends and with your, with your family. And now I will be the first one to say that I am horrible at dancing. I am not confident in my abilities. My rhythm is only to the extent of me playing instruments up here. I can't move, I promise. Um, I'm not confident. I'm self-conscious about how inevitably stupid I look. But there's something about being free and not worrying about what people think and not focusing about the opinions of others and to dance before the Lord and I don't ever do this in public, ever, never. You will never get me to dance in public unless it's like the Cupid Shuffle or the Cha-Cha Slide. That's it. I'm done. So maybe that looks like for you going in your room, locking the door, cranking up music, and just letting loose and dancing for the Lord. Because when you can breathe easy, when you can let loose before your God, that is worship. David looked stupid, guys. This isn't some kingly dance. His wife was ashamed of him. He looked stupid. And that's okay. Um, one of my friends... Um, explains it this way, which I think is super helpful. If you are doing something that causes you to feel vulnerable before God, you are probably doing it right. And if you're doing something that feels comfortable or cool, you probably aren't doing it for the right reasons. So, allow God to stir your heart and respond accordingly with your whole self. So humor me. And honestly, I think if you do this, it will bring joy to the heart of the Lord. And as we move into this time of corporate worship through song, um, I'm going to ask you to take whatever posture you pray, whether that's closed eyes, hold hands, whether that's open eyes like me and staring at the floor, whether it's um, open hands of surrender. I want you guys to all take whatever you want posture. And I want you to pray this in your hearts and in your minds with me as I say it. God, open my mind to see you clearly for the powerful and majestic and holy God that you are. And stir my heart to respond unhindered with my whole self, with boldness and humility. Amen. Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.